you, you hear that term shit like a goose that had to be coined in Arkansas because that is a real thing. You can literally, you walk out into a green field down there and you are literally slipping and sliding everywhere because they're just flushing that green right through their system. Hey everybody, welcome to the DSD podcast. I'm Brad Cochran with Dave Smith and today's guest is Trevor Manteuffel. Trevor, welcome to the show. Hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Hey, good, Trevor. It's good to have you. Thanks uh, Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. So Trevor, give us some background. Tell us about uh, Top of the Flyway. Uh, well, I've been going on my 21st year of guiding waterfall hunts now. Uh, been up in the same spot in Alberta, uh, up northern Alberta for about right around the same time, about 20 years now. I've been running Top of the Flyway on my own for the past nine seasons now. And uh, over that time, we've expanded down into Arkansas doing the speckle belly and some snow goose hunting there, primarily concentrating on the specks as well. Um, so it's it's been a pretty wild ride last 20 years going uh, north and south of the border and all the way back up again. Um, I'm a legalized border jumper, citizen of both countries. So mom and dad actually uh, planned that out back in the day when they got us dual citizenship and it's playing out uh, big time right now. Pretty nice feeling to be able to hop the border with uh, all the crazy times and border closures that are going on right now that they still consider hunting an essential workforce. Right on. Yeah, no kidding, especially with, I, I imagine the pressure is probably pretty light north of the border these days. Yeah, as far as hunting goes, it's unbelievably light. Um, you know, it's a sad, sad thing right now going on with the, the entire tourism tourism industry in Canada being completely shut down from, you know, campsites and fishing lodges all the way to big game outfitters, bird outfitters. It's just a multi-billion dollar loss for the for the entire country. And they apparent, apparently have uh, no... Uh, no intention to open it up anytime soon, which is the sad part. Everybody keeps asking me what what I think is going to happen, and it's it's honestly not looking good. The U.S. is more, in, uh, they seem to want to get everything going a lot quicker. But Canada is uh, our, our fearless leaders up there are saying that their their intentions are to keep the citizens of Canada safe. So, however they're planning on doing that, allowing hunters is apparently one of, or not allowing hunters into the country is one of their tactics but we don't have to get into the whole COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were you able to um, still do guided hunts like by, by taking Canadian residents? I, I was, um, you know, I, I do deer hunts in the fall after the, after the waterfall season's done. I have a few groups of guys from Calgary and Edmonton that have been hunting with me for a few years. It's just one of those touchy things, you know, you know, with having my dual income and being able to work, you know, guiding goose hunts for six, seven months out of the year. Fortunately, you know, the, the bank account was good enough that I didn't, I wasn't forced into having to guide residents. It's one of those touchy things, kind of like fish guiding, you know, you can take out all the locals you want and make some money, but at the end of the day, you're showing them how to do it in your backyard. So it kind of creates, you know, do, do you want to take people out and show them a good time? Or do you want to create competition? It's kind of one of those touchy guiding things. So I didn't advertise for it this year. I literally... I think we had 14 days of clients this year, 12 or 14, and we just left it at that and had a good easy fall. Um, you know, after 20 years, it was nice having a break. I actually 
I think it did 75 days of deer hunting as opposed to 75 days of waterfowl up north. So it was, it's quite the culture shock for me going to a tree stand more than it was going to a deer, uh, goose blind. And are you Canadian born? Yes. Yep. Yep. Born in Manitoba. My mom's side of the family's from Canada. Dad was from Wisconsin and, and, uh, he moved up there back in the day and married mom, got Canadian citizenship. All us kids got us citizenship by birth. So full blown dual citizens of both countries and it makes it nice, uh, being able to follow a guy's passion, following birds north and south of the border with them. Is that, oh, that's awesome. is that difficult? Uh, like with, with home life and family life and stuff like that, like, tra- like tra- traveling a lot. Um, it, uh, it never really was an issue for me because I didn't get married until last year. Actually our one year anniversary here is on Sunday. So, uh, home life has always been on the road and it's never been, never been an issue. So, uh, luckily I got, got me a good woman now that wants to be a part of it and she's been part of it and she's done the trip up and down, up and down across the border a few times. And, uh, she's part of the business booking hunts, talking to clients and, uh, we're working on expanding everything even further. So it's, uh, you know, it's definitely one of those things. A lot of, a lot of guys aren't that fortunate to, you know, be able to take their, their family and their kids on the road, but I'm, uh, it's one of those life choices I made where I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going in. It's not very good to have a wife and kids in this line of work. It makes it, make it a lot tougher. So that's the route I went. I was rolling solo for the longest time. And now I got a, now I got a wing girl following, following the birds with me every year. Nice. You know, I, that reminds me, I remember like just following you on Facebook and stuff. I remember you, you're getting married last year. And by the way, congratulations on your one year anniversary coming up. And, and that's very close to when my anniversary is too, with my, my wife. But also I remember thinking when you were in Maui last year, like, um, I was thinking, Oh boy, this is cutting it close. Like, are they going to be able to leave, you know? And like, uh, because of, because of COVID. And then I thought, well, there could be worse places to be stuck, you know? Oh, absolutely. I was ready to stay. Uh, all our farmer friends up in Canada were telling us stay. If there's nothing to come home to, everything's shut down. It's 20 below stay in Maui. We <laughs> wanted to stay. I wanted to stay. Uh, well, we had the, the dogs were being taken care of by some friends. I'm might be putting my foot in my mouth in here, but, uh, the wife wanted to get home to the dogs. So we left on our scheduled departure day and, and yeah, they were shutting the Island down. I think they closed it down two days after we left. So with, with all wow. the big COVID scares, they filled everybody on the plane. I don't know how many people were on the plane and just a hot, sweaty airplane, people coughing and mouth breathing everywhere and just a perfect environment to contract COVID. But Hey, we we made it one year COVID free, and we haven't killed each other during the pandemic. So I I would say that's a that's a win on year one of the marriage. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. I was uh, I was I have lots of family in Maui, and I was in Maui just right before then uh, watching. My niece is actually a singer in in uh, in, in Maui, Onohia, and um, she got married on Maui, and so I was there right before you, and then made it home, and I was I was really thankful that I, you know, got to go be with family, uh, for, you know, one last time before it all shut down. Yeah. It's a pretty special place out there for sure. It's, I don't get to go on a lot of vacations or any vacations at all, but it seems usually when I'm going somewhere, it's usually hunting related, but went and got married. Yeah. We did a little bit of hunting. We shot some deer, shot some goats, but there, I have never been to a place where you can just relax like you can in Hawaii. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, for sure. Now, if they would just open up the season on Nene's. Yep. Yeah, yep, exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think he'd have a pretty good chance of getting a ban or Tarsus banned. Yeah, yeah, we only found yeah, one place. Like we only found one place at a restaurant in town that uh, that had him. Actually, it was a, a big greenhouse farm on the edge of. Uh, Oh, I, I'm terrible with the names, but it was right outside is of town it? there. And there was a couple couple geese on the pond there. I was pretty excited to just sit down, and they were feeding right next to me. Got lots of good pictures of them, but those were the only only two I saw the entire time we were there. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say the restaurant was serving Nene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking yeah. to myself, eh, you might not want to go uh, public about that. Was, that. was that Mama's Fish House by chance? Uh, no, it was, I want to say it was west of, uh, west of Kahului, in between Kahului and Kihei. Okay. Um, either west or south, I'm not sure. I think the highway runs north and south there, but it was west. It was a big, uh, there was a big greenhouse, kind of like a farm, actually. Um, I don't know if they called it an orchard or something, but they had a big restaurant and a bar and a big pond full of ducks and a couple nanes walking around eating grass like they owned the place. Which they probably did. Right on. It's an expensive bird if you were mm. to shoot one. <laughs> yeah, they have a cool. They have a cool call. They have a cool sound that they make. Yeah, I never did oh. get to hear it, but they they're a pretty neat bird. But not quite as neat as snow geese, and and that's uh, something that we can actually hunt. And so how you know how how has that been the last few years? It's the best way I can describe snow geese, uh, in particular the mid continent flight. It goes in the central and the Mississippi flyways. It is the most unpredictable roller coaster a waterfowler could experience in in the United States. I would say, in my opinion, um, you know, this year in particular, I for years I've I've liked to think that I've seen it all when it comes to what snow geese do in the central and the Mississippi flyway. Some pretty incredible things, uh, stuff that you'd think they'd never do the best hunts, the absolute worst hunts. And then this year, 18 inches of snow in central Arkansas. I never would have thought that. And then the snow geese throw you for a completely different loop and show you something new that you've never seen before. You know, it's, uh, in my opinion, and uh, my buddy Nick at Eaglehead Outdoors, he'll back me on this. They are the most inconsistent animal out there. Uh, like everybody knows you either love them, you hate them, you hate to love them, love to hate them. But in our opinion, there is no other species of waterfowl that the weather controls your success more than what spring snow goose hunting does. It's just rolling the dice doesn't even begin to describe it. I, I always tell clients, they always say, well, how are we going to do today? Well, well, we're in a field that had a bunch of geese. We're going to shoot 10 or we're going to shoot 110. It's the best way I can describe it, guys. I don't know what's going to happen until it happens. You just, the minute you get excited and you think you're going to have a good one, you have the worst one. And then some of the worst days that you're expecting turn into the best days possible. It's literally a crapshoot. Mm. That's the best way I can describe it. It's about as unpredictable as can be. I mean, it's one of those things. And I said it to the guides this year. Uh, everything you know literally didn't matter this year. It didn't matter. All you could do was do what you knew and see what happened. It's It was just uh, about as eye-opening as it could be. And, and every year is different. It's, it's so up and down. Uh, 
roller coaster describes it perfectly. One year you're averaging 150 birds a day, the next year you're averaging 25, then you're back up to 60, and then you're back up to 90, and then you're back down to 30 again. It's uh, I can see how they uh, I don't I don't know what their deal is. They got to be a bipolar bird or something. Then they cause a lot of goose hunters <laughs> to become bipolar because they're driving me nuts. They drive everybody nuts, but. It's those good days that make you forget about the bad days, and those are the ones that stand out, and that's what keeps go, keeps driving a guy to keep chasing these things. Yeah, that that's, that sounds like they're all female. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I tell guys, too. If there's any female <laughs> listeners, you're probably going to get mad at me for saying this, but when the geese are just, they keep spinning and spinning, or they you know give you seven spins and then just leave, and go, well, what happened there? What happened there? That's all it's a bunch of females they can't figure out what restaurant they want to go to tonight guys <laughs> i've been using oh, that God. line for a long time and uh it's it plays true they don't know what they're doing where do you want to eat i don't care where do you want to eat <laughs> and then you have to keep guessing until you get the one that they actually want yep yep yeah uh well you know we've you know talking to a lot of snow goose hunters and snow goose hunting ourselves and everything like that like uh you know, like a lot of the guides always tell their clients, you know, like you better, you better book, th- book three or four or more days if you want to make sure you have at least one, you know, barn burner. Yep, absolutely. And the barn burner isn't even, I mean, it's a, such a scary word to use because you can't guarantee that. I mean, some of the, you know, our best years were years that we weren't expecting it to happen as good as it did, but Absolutely. We tell guys, if you want the best shot at getting in that hundred bird club, you need three or four days because you never know what the weather is going to do. If you come for two and you got two days of solid rain, well, and if it's a cold rain, especially if it's raining in the 40, 40s, it's going to be miserable. If you got rain in the 60s, you know, geese are a lot happier when it's a lot warmer. So, you know, if you can always book as many days as possible, consecutive days, Guys always ask, when's the best time to go? It's it's such a crapshoot, too. You could literally have that, you know, metaphorical monkey throwing darts at the calendar and pick dates for you um, and, and just see what happens because it's – you never know. Like, the best shooting is probably going to be coming up in Arkansas here this week. It was a massive migration out the last four days. We have not seen birds migrating at the heights that they've been flying in probably seven or eight years, you know, you usually don't see a visible migration in Arkansas. If you do, it's usually in the morning and they're taking off low and then they're heading up to Northeast Arkansas, Southern Missouri. And those guys pick up the migration in the afternoon. But, uh, this year, especially the last four days, it's been pretty impressive. Just birds rolling out at, you know, mile high. And that's something that hasn't happened. We haven't had that many birds push South. I mean, it's, I would like to know what the actual numbers were, how many birds actually made it completely south this year because the entire south was in that blizzard and there was nowhere for them to go. Um, but with what we've seen in the migration the last four days, we we know it's been pretty impressive how many birds really went south this year. Huh, that's interesting. So when you say um, south, you're talking down in Louisiana, Texas? Yeah, I would assume. I mean, that's those are a couple places I've never hunted. But everybody knows they there's birds that go to the Gulf Coast. Where they go in Louisiana from us, I don't know. We've strictly stuck to Arkansas the last eight years. Um, but there's definite heavy migration that's been coming up from the south. And the heights they've been, they're not getting that high, you know, within the first hour south of us. They've been moving for a while. So um, 
lots of east-west migrations. That's what a lot of people don't understand, too. Once they get down south, it's just uh, the polar opposite of their breeding grounds. It's a big, big wintering ground. Lots of east and west migration. But with that storm that hit us a couple weeks ago, didn't matter where they went. They went east or west, north, south. They were in the same storm. I, I don't know how they managed to get through it um, when that snow hit. And even where we were in, in Arkansas, there was temperatures below zero uh, several days where it was single digits, highs in the oh, no. tens and tees, and well over a foot of snow on the level in the fields. And birds that we were shooting, once we started running clients again, uh, they were literally starving. They probably lost 30% of their body weight. You could tell when they were flying. They just looked real weird when they were flying. Their wing beats were a lot slower. And you could tell they were struggling to keep up in the air. Their flight was really slow and just not the big, strong adult geese that you're used to seeing. And these were, the, I mean, these were the big front edge birds, but they, I mean, it's incredible what they did. I mean, they're walking around and being in cornfields with a foot of snow and literally standing alongside of the road, picking at whatever piece of grass, or if it was coffee beans or any any little beanstalk that a combine might have missed, just doing anything they could to survive. Um, lots of horse pastures. Anywhere there was a horse with a bale, there was snow geese. It was pretty incredible. Birds walking in people's driveways, uh, trying to get at grass underneath the trees. It was, they were completely out of their element. And then they just showed us how strong of a survivor they really are. Wow. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a lot of people would think, would be a good time to to not hunt them, but actually, you know, it's a, probably a good time to l lower the population a little bit if you can, you know. Oh, and that's that's exactly what we did. It's a tough call to make because it's you hate canceling guys, you hate having to try and reschedule guys because, especially in a season like this, with uh, you know Nick's been running Eagle Head Outdoors for a long time, and and they run guys all the way through the end of March, 1st of April in South Dakota. So it's not like they could just keep pushing guys back in Arkansas because they have to make, make an 800 mile bump and go set spreads for guys that have booked up North. So it's a, a real tough gamble on, all right, what do we do during the snowstorm? And we, uh, we went with our gut, like, oh, the birds are going to leave. We got a foot of snow. We're going to have another foot tonight. There's going to be no birds around. They stuck it out. We, we rolled the dice for our clients saying it's going to be miserable. There was birds that stuck around, not a lot, but they were quality decoying birds because they were literally dying. It was a whole new situation that we've never seen before. They were starving and they let their guard down and they would have came to the paper plates and plastic bags. They would have, they would have decoyed to Texas rags for those couple days. It was pretty silly. Um, and we figured that out from, uh, when the storm cleared, our guides went out and they did some ice fishing, which I don't think anybody's done in southern Arkansas in a real long time. One of the reservoirs mm -hmm. from our place froze over and there's four inches of ice. So they walked out and cut some holes and were trying to catch some crappies through the ice. And the geese were flying. So crappies weren't biting. They put 11 decoys on the ice. And I think they killed 40 geese that first afternoon between three guys, just decoying big trophy adult snow geese. And then the next day... Uh, five of them went out. I went and joined them for a little bit. They put 17 full bodies and one e-collar on the ice and killed, uh, probably close to 80, I think, you know, and just, and this is 17 decoys on the oh, middle wow. of a crappie reservoir 
and <laughs> shooting adult snow geese with two feet of snow on the ground and nowhere for them to feed. Wow. Just a situation you never thought would have worked. So we ended up bouncing some clients down and we shot, we called it the ice hole. We shot the ice hole for a couple of days and clients took about 160 birds there and had a great start to their hunt and we made something happen out of it. But who would have thought? Well, I mean, I've only shoot. experienced that one time um, with, with cacklers up here. We don't get much snow either. And one year um, we had 16 inches of snow and yeah, the poor geese were starving, but uh, for the record, it was not a tough call for me. Um, it was time to, it was time for payback. So, um, I didn't give them any mercy whatsoever, but one of the things that was really effective was I spent several hours actually digging up, um, a, a hole in the snow, I dug all the way down to the field and it was literally the only exposed field anywhere. And honestly, I probably didn't even decoys, um, the geese saw that and um they were starving and it was their only option so you know i mean i made i cleared out about a swimming pool sized hole in the snow and um yeah it just it wasn't even fair yeah i shot a limited net collars that day it was really fast under an hour that's see that's not even fair why do you have to go that way with it you know Uh, but yeah, 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 it's, it's hard not feeling bad for him. Cause he, I mean, he, there is a serious amount of respect that is not given to these birds. They're, they're, they're so smart and they're just survivors. That's what they've been doing. I mean, nobody knows the actual age of these things or the average age. And we don't know if there's 4 million or 10 million. I mean, nobody knows how many are in this mid-continent flight because they're just so spread out and there's so many of them, but they are just smart and just built to survive. That's all they do is they just keep on going. I mean, it's, we've been having this conservation season going since 1998, I believe. And, you know, it's, we haven't knocked them back. Everything seems to be maintaining or the populations go up one year. You got lots of juvies the next year you don't. And uh, they keep the hunting season open because they, they literally can be unkillable. I use that word a lot. It, it uh, kind of pisses off my guides. Well, the geese are unkillable. They're unkillable. And uh, they literally are unkillable sometimes. Um, we can get into that when we start talking about some other decoy tactics. But there's literally some days with these central flyway birds, there isn't a dang thing you can do about it because they just know what a decoy is. They know what every decoy is on the market. And there's literally... Bur- you know, parts of the population during certain weather, certain stages of the migration, you just, you, you can't do anything about it. They will literally fly by you, land in the next field over or land a couple hundred yards from you just because they know, you know, and especially in the wintering grounds down here, um, they, oh, I don't know how to put it. They, they just know they've been here. They're living here. They see the duck hunters. They see every popcorn hut blind that's out there. They know what to fly away from. Um, it's almost like they mock you sometimes if you could be on the best X ever and they'll just go land 300 yards away from you, you know, just like smart honkers do the same thing as well. Um, but these ones, it's, it's got an extra sting to it when a snow goose does it to you though. <laughs> yeah. What well, I'm sure. And if they're not moving once they're in the wintering grounds, uh, any bird 
gets a lot harder to kill. And, you know, you talk about the conservation season being open since 98 and there's God only knows how many of those Snokies have been alive for the entire conservation season. I mean, you hear guys killing birds every year in the in the 20s, you know, mid to even late 20s. Those geese are old. Absolutely. I I mentioned that to the guys this year. I said, I guarantee you there's birds in this flight right now that were laughing at my decoy spreads when I was 21 years old in college, you know, and they're still doing it and they're still pissing me off and they're still unkillable. You know, it's, it's pretty impressive when you look at the big picture, how old some of those things are. And what's, what's the oldest band you guys have killed? Uh, I want to say 21 or 22. That seems to be the oldest that we've had in the field. My personal is personal oldest is a 19 year old Ross. Um, lot, even this year, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't get down here until, uh, after new year's, but in November, December during the spec hunts, a lot of the specs that were killed were over 10 years old. I think there was a 17 and an 18 year old spec and a couple tens and twelves. So, I mean, that's just, uh, that's a that's old birds all the way across the board coming from the Arctic for sure, and so your conservation season it it starts um, immediately following your fall season is that correct? Yep, yep. It comes in the day after duck season goes out and they run it for five days and then they take a break for uh, a youth and veteran hunt day and then gets rolling right back through it all the way through February and into March. They don't give them a break. In, in Arkansas, are you 20 birds a day during your fall season? Uh, it's I, I'm not sure what it is because we don't even worry about getting a limit on them. It's changed so much. Um, there, there was a couple days, the big juvie hatch here in 2018. We had a couple days in the fall regular season that we killed over 200, and I think we had 17 hunts over 100 just in the fall season with no e-collars and no tube extensions. The guys had really good hunts. I it sounds bad that I don't know it because we never reach a limit of snow geese anyways, but it's 20 or 25. Um, but from how much it's changed in the eight years I've been down here and it's hundred percent pressure driven too. Um, there's so many more goose guides down here than, than there was a few, just a few years ago even. But I remember going out and you wouldn't even really have to scout speckle bellies. You would just find a snow goose feed and you would know that you would get your two bird limit of specs you could take six or 10 guys out. Everybody would shoot their two specs and you'd probably get two or three spins of snows coming off the reservoirs at first light. The, spe- the snows would always move first and they would come right back to the X. And we'd literally put out anywhere from two dozen shells to maybe a hundred wind socks with the spec spread. I mean, very small white spreads and they would give you a good spins and you would get them right in there. And it's just changed so much now that the snows don't even come out at first light. They usually sit for the first half hour, 45 minutes, and then there's no big massive flocks coming off a reservoir at, at once because that's what you need in order to decoy them. You can't decoy the, sm- the s- small flocks down here. You need the big flocks that make the noise, and they just basically discombobulate themselves, create their own natural e-collar, and they lose their mind, and then they once they start spinning, it's game over. But they've changed so much that they just spread out in little flights and they're just flying back and forth, tens and twenties, 50, hundred, and literally fly right by you. It's, it's pretty incredible how much the snows have adapted to pressure just in the last five years. It's pretty incredible how they've changed, how, how they acted 
just from seeing so many more decoy spreads and so much more pressure. And it's honestly the jump shooting part of it. That's not even uh, that's not even a thing in Arkansas in the fall. It's when when everybody's duck hunting, you don't hear anybody jump shooting snows. There's no reservoirs getting jumped in the dark. They're honestly let left alone to do their own thing and they just get relaxed and they're just bouncing around in little groups. But uh, it also makes them the hardest, hardest birds to try and decoy in this situation down here. Cause they're getting, they're literally getting shot at when they're flying over every duck's bled. Yeah. Our, our cacklers are the same in that they decoy um, pretty readily in really large flocks. And um, I always would, would rather try to decoy, you know, a flock of 500 over a, a group of, you know, 20. Um, so it sounds like the snow geese are, are pretty similar in that regard. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Everybody haunts the, the big spins. And honestly, those are the, the big ones that, uh, um, that work the best. A lot of people say, well, we want, you'll hear our clients say, well, we need cloudy weather and we get those small groups to decoy better. No, it's the exact opposite. We want sunshine and we want the big flocks. The big flocks cause pure chaos and they lose their mind. They literally give up on life. Once that spin starts, it's a, a pretty incredible thing. Not a lot of people get to experience it, but uh, it's it's what you need to, to get them things to decoy. And I, I've seen some pretty neat stuff in Arkansas. You know, just with some of the biggest spins I've ever had have been with a dozen decoys, just because it looks like that. All right, here's the X and you get that first big wad that comes off the reservoir and they're coming out like it's their job and nobody's messed with them. And 12 decoys will decoy 5,000. I've seen it dozens of times down there. doesn't seem to work anymore though. Um, but the smaller, the smaller spreads have been working for the smaller flocks. Um, it's... I mean, we can get into this later too, but comparing them to the specs, we've had more success with your guys' new snow goose decoys with specs than we have with the spec full bodies. As weird as that may sound, the specs in Arkansas like your guys' snow goose decoys better than they like the specs. Hmm. Hmm, that's really interesting. It's it's really interesting. It took us hmm. a couple years to figure that out too. Um, but it's strictly due to certain areas of the area we hunt too we have different areas of birds some spots are literally like a juvie wintering grounds the juvies just get left alone and when you find those guys you can just beat them up for a week at a time in the same field it's you know the kids are just left alone mom and dad aren't there and then you go 40 miles south and it is the biggest most mature speckle bellies that just ignore you they just fly right by you um they don't even flare. They just know you're a decoy spread. doesn't matter what you have out there at them. And they just fly right by you. But for some reason, when we've put out our smaller spreads of uh, the DSD snows, we've had specs eat them up. And it's been kind of one of our, our little go-to things. When the going gets tough and we got to start trying to hunt those tough birds, because there's literally some specs down there that we don't some areas we just stay away from because they literally are that tough from pressure. So got to wait for the right conditions and the, the right spread to throw at them. But the snow goose full bodies have been pretty good tool for fooling some of those real stale specs that have just been living down here for almost three months, you know, four months. Heck, they get down there the first part of October and they stay down there till the end of January. It's a long time to be living in the same area and seeing the same, 
same sock spread, same silo spread, same A-frame blinds that everybody's throwing at them. It's a lot of rep repetition down here. So we're, we're constantly changing things up a bit and trying to give them something new. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. That's, it goes with so much, so many things in hunting and fishing, just being a little bit different sometimes makes all the difference, but it also could be, you know, something to that as far as they're just a, a trust factor or something with specs figuring out that snows, you know, are kind of flitty. And if snows have found a good, a good spot that's safe and everything like that, then it must, must be safe. I know with, you know, with all the different, you know, subspecies of Canada geese, there's a lot of that going on, you know, like smaller, smaller geese tend to trust larger geese just generally and stuff like that. So I wonder if there's that factor going on too. Oh, absolutely. I've believed that for years, you know, growing up in North Dakota, when, uh, you know, back in the day we could put out a couple hundred rags and you'd shoot a few snow geese, shoot a few lessers and you'd kill your ducks. Everything wants to be with the snow geese. It's there's just like you said, that trust factor, everything, wants to be where the snow geese are because well it's it's got to be safe if those crazy things are down there it's got to be a good place <laughs> they want to be there but they don't want to be there with them because they're also the biggest jerks in the waterfowl world you know they yeah. they don't let you get close uh they like to bite everybody very aggressive feeders but uh and that's what we see with the specs a lot you know even uh seven eight years ago when I used to scout the spec or the snow feeds in Arkansas, the specs would be right in the middle with them. If you found a snow feed, there'd be specs scattered all the way through it. Everybody was happy. And probably the last five years, they still come to the snow spreads. Uh, but then there'll be, you know, a definitive black and white line where the specs are on the edge. They slowly get kicked out. It wasn't like that a, a while ago. The, they, everybody seemed to be pretty happy. And so I don't know if these, I, I, I constantly try and think of new reasons of why these geese are doing what they're doing. Are these geese that much older and they don't tolerate anybody else? You know, once the specs get in there, they kick them out to the sides. You know, were all the birds feeding happily together eight, nine years ago? And, and now they the snows don't want anybody to be with them. I don't know. I, I think of crazy stuff like that all the time when I'm scouting, but, uh, whatever the reason is things, things are changing. Flyways change, birds habits change, weather's change. Um, and us as waterfallers, if we aren't constantly racking our brain on how to keep beating things, beating these things, it just, it just makes it that much tougher. You can't keep flatlining and doing the same thing over and over. It's, it's uh, what keeps us going. Think of new tricks. Keep fooling them. Keep getting after them. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, and I can, you know, just just talking to you, Trevor. Like I can, I get the uh, the impression that you have a ton of respect for the birds, and then you you have real realistic expectations. Like, um, well, and what's and then you know you you talk about some of the difficulties of of guiding, and but you 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 guys do have a fantastic reputation and, and you do shoot the numbers of now we've, we've met a lot of guides over the years that are, are almost the exact opposite. Like, uh, they, they will constantly tell you that everything's great and going to be great. And, and, uh, and then they'll come up with really good excuses of why it wasn't. And they'll tell jokes all day and all that stuff, sort of just trying to make money. But you are, you are just the opposite of that, which is really, which is really great. Yeah, I've I've always uh, told my guys it's better to be realistic than optimistic. 
that way you're you're never let down i mean the only way to be realistic is you got to have that field experience you got to see all the different things they can throw at you i mean i'm only 43 you know, when I was in my twenties, I was hunting with guys in their thirties and forties as well. And they showed me new things then. And I'm, I like to think I'm like a player coach that's showing, you know, guys in their twenties that have been hunting with me for the last eight, 10 years, everybody keeps passing down all this knowledge and, and showing everybody what to keep doing. And, and, uh, the realistic part of it is, uh, you know, you gotta be honest with the people. It's, everything is kind of changing. You can't, you can't blow the, the smoke and mirrors show. Oh yeah. We're going to hammer them. We're going to get limits. It's been awesome. You never know what's going to happen at the end of any day. Usually that first, first flock of the day in general will tell you how the day is going to go. That's the kind of way I gauge it. Um, you know, unless you get that magic sunlight that comes out early and changes everything from a cloudy day to a sunny day. And the, like the, like the light switch goes on, you know, everybody's had those days where it's just tough, tough, tough. And then the sun comes out and every bird in the sky just decides to start decoying. Um, but that's kind of one thing we've prided ourselves on is, you know, being honest with the guys it's yeah, it is hunting. Everybody says, Oh, it's hunting's hunting. That's just the way it is. I, I take it so personally. That's the old, old high school and college athlete in me, I guess. I hate losing. I absolutely hate losing. I do not scout to put out decoys to bird watch. I absolutely hate it. I And I get really frustrated <laughs> when it doesn't work. Absolutely hate it because it's just one of those things. You think you know everything. The worst thing you can do is think you know everything because one, just that's that old saying, there's always somebody that knows a little bit more. And uh, one other line I like to say to guys is never stop learning. If you can learn one new thing every hunting season, that's just one more trick you can add to your bag. You might not use it the next year. It might be 10 years before you can uh, use it again, but it's a little trick that you can have in there. And it's just never stop learning. Always take something from them. And this was definitely one of those years this year with that ice storm that we saw. I've never seen it before where i would have thought an 18 inches 18 inches of snow falling would have caused snow geese to start starving to death in arkansas and just give up their lives in the decoys it was the strangest thing we thought they would be leaving and we'd have to cancel our hunters but totally opposite so you know one thing that we've been learning a lot uh lately and especially with these podcasts is is how much um in the migration, you know, we used to think of it as like a north to south. And then once birds are on their wintering ground, especially snow geese, how much, how much flying around there is like, uh, and so it is, it is, it's pretty, pretty remarkable really. And, and those birds, you know, whatever they're doing, they're, you know, searching for good conditions or something like that. But, you know, if you get to a point where it's so cold uh, and there's no access to food, it's all completely buried in snow or ice, then eventually you lose enough strength to be able to, you're, you're no longer able to do the, uh, the east to west and west to east, you know, flying around and looking, looking for more food. And then you're, you're kind of stuck at that point. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what happened to these things. It's, you almost, we did feel sorry for him. I almost wanted to say, well, we almost felt sorry for him. Well, we did feel sorry for him. We have such a respect for these birds and nothing bugs us more when, when people call them by that old name, the sky carp or the flying rats with wings. It's, 
people hate these birds because they are so smart and so tough to kill. And in order to consistently kill them, you honestly need a lot of luck. It's you need the weather. You have to have good, consistent weather to make happy geese. Uh, the year of 2018 proved that it was the most incredible juvie hatch. Everybody that had a truck full of decoys was killing hundred snow geese a year. And then everybody was on Facebook with pile pictures and everybody's snow goose guides. All of a sudden, those guys are all gone already. Two years gone. You saw them booking hunts last year with all their pictures from the year before with all these massive hundred and 200 bird piles. They're all gone. Just a complete changing of the guard. You know, the, the guides come and go a couple years, guys become snow goose killers. They disappear. Uh, the guys that have been around a long time, like my, my friends at Eaglehead Outdoors, uh, Migrator Valley, they've been doing a long time. Do they consistently kill birds? Yeah, every year. Do they consistently kill lots of birds? Absolutely not. There's tough years. There's It's the most inconsistent hunt out there. But to consistently keep going and keeping happy customers with the toughest bird alive is... You know, it's it's a pretty good track record to be able to do something like that. And then to see something like this year where birds are literally freezing to death and dying in below zero temperatures in central Arkansas. Who would have thought that would have happened? You know, and, That's crazy. and, and shooting 80 to 100 of them with 17 decoys on a frozen crappie reservoir. That's That's not a scenario you would think to put hunters in. But what do you yeah. know? We tried it and it worked. And when birds are out of their element, they'll do, do things that they normally wouldn't do. So all a guy can do is just keep learning from little things like that and wait for the next hundred year blizzard in Arkansas to try it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, about your tactics, your decoy spreads and your, your hides and, and all that stuff under, under, you know, semi-normal conditions. What's, what do you call a normal condition? <laughs> I, I don't even know what a normal condition <laughs> is anymore. Um, ideally, ideally, you want that 10 to 12 mile an hour wind. I don't care what direction it's blowing from. Uh, you want a 10 to 12 mile an hour wind with sunshine and you wake up smiling. When you're setting those decoys out, you're smiling. You're like, all right, it's going to be a good day. But when it doesn't work and you have the ideal conditions... Um, then you start questioning yourself. All right, what can we do to change it? What was it today? Uh, what was the temperature? That's another big one. That's another uncontrollable. We like to use that word a lot, uncontrollable. The weather, 100% uncontrollable. How your customers shoot their guns, uncontrollable. You know, everybody wants a 100-bird day, but if you're not an aggressive shooter, uh, you know, some days those birds are at 15 yards, some days they're at 50 um, and in the conservation snow goose hunt, everybody wants to shoot their guns. So, I mean, it's one of those things, uh, temperature, that's a big one. You get into the fifties, snow geese get happy. Everybody thinks cold is better because they get hungry. They want to feed more. No, snows and specks are, they're a different duck. They're, uh, when it's cold, they're not happy. They're not happy. Of course you hit a certain point where if it's cold enough, everything is going to want to cooperate. But when you got temps in the twenties and thirties frosty, it's not a snow and speckle belly day. I, everybody can kill honkers in the snow, uh, sun or clouds, uh, totally different bird. 
but uh, there's something about the snows and specks. Even though they're from the Arctic, they don't. They're not happy when it's cold. You get that 50 and 60 degree temp, that changes a lot. It changes how you set up. Changes how you're, what kind of spread you're going to run. Whether you're going to run a big sock spread. Um, all depends on what flights of birds you got. How many birds are in your, you know, in our case in Arkansas, what, what's the area holding? You know, we might have a feed of 10,000 birds. And then what kind of trickle flight are you going to get after that? How many feeds are in the area? How many, you know, what way is the wind blowing? Which, uh, which direction is the trickle flight going to come? Um, you know, your feed flight might be over in literally five minutes. And then you sit there for an hour and wait for those feeds to fizzle apart and birds start bouncing around. And then you pick away at the smaller bunches. Um, but we use... We like to use pretty much every tactic that's out there from, from the wind socks, the silhouettes, the full bodies, laying in the white suits, which is probably one of our least favorite, but there is a place for it, just like everything else. There is a place for it. Um, you know, the stand-up blinds, lay-down blinds, there's places for everything. Um, and it's basically what you, you got to know what kind of birds you got. That's the blessing we have of being in Arkansas all winter as opposed to other outfits that might just show up a week before shooting time. Uh, you don't know what kind of birds there is. Nobody seems to know what the juvie population does. Every, where's the juvies at? Where's the juvies at? That's the number one question. Nobody knows. They're always gone. They always disappear. When people start getting them, everybody's quiet. Um, but that's the beauty of us being down south all winter. We know what the flights are doing. We know what kind of birds are down there. We've... Uh, Oh, what's the best way to put it? We've studied our enemy as much as we can. So we know what to expect once February comes along <laughs> and uh, we know if it's going to be decent or if it's going to be tough. And then once the migration starts, that all changes as well too. So it's uh, knowing what you're going up against, what kind of snow goose you're going up against, what kind of mixed flocks are you on the front edge? Are you getting the mid, the middle of the ones where you got some juvies mixed in? Are you on the tail end where it's lots of juvies, but it might be small bundles of birds? You know, there's so many different variations and that and the weather all dictates on, on how a guy wants to set up for that kind of scenarios. So uh, contrast for us, um, hunting birds on the move in the, during the spring migration versus, uh, hunting down in Arkansas on the wintering grounds. You basically running the migrator spreads once they start bumping north, <clears throat> time proven tactic that absolutely works. Me and Nick have said it for years. Uh, our you know our stats show we have killed more birds, and a, and a lot of outfitters have too. Way more birds have died to a, a Tyvek windsock over a full body or a shell decoy or anything else. It's it's something about it. It's the sheer numbers. You get that. Uh, you can get to that a larger decoy spread a lot quicker, easier to set up, easier to transfer. More people can do it. It's more affordable, but it's something about the socks. It's been the time proven thing. So a lot of guys will run the migrator spreads, um, you know, being in your traffic areas, your pinch points, your, your key migration corridors. That's the big difference going North. And then you hit the certain spot too. Um, you know, a lot of guys will want to get ahead of the migration and, and, that can be a win. That can be a loss too. You can be up, a, up at the front edge, those front edge birds, they are the smartest ones, you know, in general. But when you catch them on the right migration day, when they've flown 
1500 miles and they're hungry and they, they, you will get a spin. It's one of the neatest things ever where you're literally sitting and watching them come down for takes five minutes for them to come down because it's just the longest tornado. I mean, that's one of the neatest things ever. A lot of guys don't really get to see that. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in North and South Dakota. That's cool. And it, it is incredibly, it's a totally different style of hunt. You know, you roll out to the same field every day for four days or your outfitter might rotate you between three or four spreads. Um, so you get a different change of scenery, but when you are in that flight, it's pretty incredible because it, once you get so far north, the Dakotas is especially have changed so much that chasing a feed is, it's kind of proven a waste of time. They're so unpredictable and you got the sheet water to compete with and food everywhere. And they're just so smart that, uh, you, you run those migrator spreads. You honestly have a better chance of shooting 40 birds doing that than you do 40 birds chasing a feed. But, you know, just like everything else, it, uh, it all depends on what, what kind of scenario you got, what kind of bird you're hunting too. But those tornadoes, when they're doing the big, the big migrations, the, the mile high flight, it's one of the most impress impressive things a guy could see in the waterfall world. So Trevor, since I know some of our listeners are going to be curious and want to know, like, do you have uh, brands of like windsocks or silhouettes that you use and like and recommend? Uh, we've used them all. Um, and every one of them, I, I don't want to give any secrets away because, well, there is really is no secrets to give away, but there's pros and cons to all decoys. Everybody's uh, got a little different features here and there. There hasn't been the ultimate best windsock built yet in my opinion but uh there's so many of them out there um if i was to pick a combination of three um that i've been really happy with is the green bay decoys and um sx decoys and the answer decoys those three have been pretty good for what we've done they all have pros and cons to them there's goods and bads um but those three have been the three in the last few years that have been the ones that have stood up for us um but it's just like everything else every, you, there doesn't seem to be an absolute bomb proof piece of equipment um until i you know your guys' decoys. I'll give you guys that. You guys have some bomb-proof piece of equipment right there. Been pretty proud with that. Um, but uh, those three wind socks, those have been pretty good. I mean, you got you got your Tango Free Slammer socks. You got uh, your White Rocks. I mean, there's so many decoys out there. Tyvek's Tyvek. It all looks the same. It's got the same color. You got all your different moving parts from your backbone to supports to your stakes, your hardware, uh, your handles, all the stuff like that. Uh, little things that Break and fall apart. I'm not going to get into bad mouth and stuff that's absolutely broken on us. Um, we've we've used pretty much everyone out there, and every one of them we've killed massive amounts of birds with. We've had incredible success with every one. But as an outfitter, you also want stuff that lasts and stands the test of time, and that seems to be the hard thing to come by with um, with a lot of the wind socks because it's, it's snow goose decoys is the hardest item to sell because it's a price point thing. You guys need a lot and they can't afford to spend a lot and that's the biggest part of it so you got to keep the cost down sometimes there might be some cheaper hardware sometimes there's some good parts out there um but at the end of the day they all do their job there isn't one that's 
there isn't a windsock on the market that's guaranteed to kill more geese than another. They all have very similar features and they all do the same job. And do you prefer windsocks with heads or without? Uh, dep again, depends what you're doing. Um, I've always been a believer that without heads, it, it doesn't matter because when the, when you have that decent wind, you have birds, they're approaching the decoys. When a goose is in a feeding position, doing that walk into the wind, a goose approaching from 40 yards behind it isn't going to see its head anyways. Um, I like to, I like to put silhouettes in with my socks. I love, uh, real geese silhouettes. They're pro twos and their econo series silos. Those are a real good mixture to mix in with socks. Um, headed socks, in my opinion, just seem to take up too much space in bags. They are nice to a point. Um, one thing we found in Arkansas is when you're doing the lane and the white spreads, and if your geese are coming from behind you every time it is an absolute power flare over the white spread because all they see is holes. They just see holes. So, I mean, that's one of those mm. factors that we like to consider when we're, are we going to set up in a white spread? Or are we going to hunt the edge? Or are we going to do laydowns out in the middle type thing? Use a different kind of decoy. Cause if the birds are coming from the backside and we know they're going to have to fly over us first, it's a whole bunch, you know, 2000 socks with a bunch of holes in it. That's just a big, goose flaring tactic you can put heads on it. if you had a headed wind socks it might help a little bit but you still got that hole in the body but a guy can't have every wind sock have a head on it so it's just one of those another one of those situational things heads on wind socks i personally don't think it's necessary if you want heads you mix in some mix in some silhouettes that's the quickest easiest way to pick it or fix it i mean Yeah, and, and I, the the one or handful of times I've used uh, wind socks with heads, I was surprised by just how bulky they are. As soon as you have that head, they just don't stack together as well. Yep, you can. A guy can go from carrying forty or fifty wind socks without heads to now you're struggling to carry two dozen with heads on it, and you can literally only stack. You know, you're putting five or seven in a bag at a time. Where wind socks, you're putting ten to fifteen in a pile and staggering them in the bag and get just takes that much time pulling stuff out putting stuff away cuts into the efficiency of the field you know getting in and getting out is the biggest thing when you're doing it every day for six months in a row but sorry sorry for the guys that make heads on wind socks i've never been a fan of it but they have they do have their place are they necessary to have an entire spread like that absolutely not but uh if guys guys feel they have to have them I mean, we have, we've had clients say it over the years. How come your decoys don't have any heads on them? Well, how many birds did you shoot today? 150. Okay. Did it matter that we had heads on them? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so when do you use full bodies and do you ever mix full bodies and socks? Uh, we did that probably the most this year that we've ever done. And I'll get back to that unkillable stage with, the, the birds that we had, um, we did half and half full body spreads. We did, you know, lots of full bodies, maybe just a few more socks to hide some blinds type of thing. Um, it gets to that point where it all depends on the birds you have. Are, are they even decoyable? I don't care what people say. These birds at some point of the season, wherever you're hunting them at, they are literally 
unkillable. There's nothing you can do on it. You know, there's, there's guys that'll sit in migrator spreads in Southeast Missouri and get zeros day after day after day. It happened in Illinois this year. I knew people that were hunting up there. Well, we killed two, we killed four. Ah, same with us. We're hunting hot feeds. We're hunting feeds of 10 to 15,000 birds. What did we kill? Seven. And we got four yesterday. Killed two in the morning, killed two in the afternoon. It's, it's unbelievably tough sometimes. And uh, every year is a little different. We had, I think it was 20, 2016, we had really tough going with the adult birds. We went from a really good juvie hatch in 15. The spring of 15 was incredible. It was really good. I think we averaged just a little over 100 birds a day that year. And then the 2016, the feeds were smaller. We were hunting feeds of four to 5,000 birds instead of 15 to 20. And they were all adults. There was absolutely no juvies. There wasn't any. And they never showed up from the start of the conservation season to the, the first week of March. There was no juvies. And we changed it up. They didn't, they didn't like the socks. All right, what else can we do? All right, well, let's throw some shells and some silhouettes at them. Let's mix it up a little bit. We went away from the socks, cut back on the e-collars, make lots of noise, you know, figure out what they like. It's probably a, it probably took us a week to figure it out. And then once, once it did, we, uh, we stuck to it and it ended up being a, a smaller full broadie spread worked the best that year. And I think I had a couple shoots with 60 or 70 adults and we ran 50 or 60 decoys just because we were on a small feed and you would, it was almost like we were hunting them in Canada. It was small flights. They're f flying a little bit higher than treetop high. I haven't seen that scenario since that was 2016 when that happened just a totally different bird that year um might have been a totally different age class the the front edge adults might not have been there a lot of one thing people don't think about too this is i'll go back to all the crazy things that me and nick think about all right so you have adult snow geese how old are they are they three are they nine are they 23 you don't know um those front edge birds that leave, we like to assume that we know that those are the oldest birds out there, the, the prime egg layers. We still don't know which, you know, are the 23 year olds, are they even laying eggs? Does anybody know? It's one thing I've never had that info brought to my attention before. Which birds are your peak egg layers? Are they the ones in the middle of the flock where you might have 70 juvies or 70% adults, 30% juvies? Um, and are they the five to 10 year olds? Are those your peak breeders? I mean, we, we don't know. So maybe that year in 2016, when we, we were killing all adult birds every day, 50 to 60, and they were all adults, but are we killing four-year-old birds or are they 20-year-old birds? Are we really outsmarting them or are we just killing birds that have only been adults for one or two years and they're separated from the really old smart flight? You know, it's, it's little things like that that we constantly think about. Are we really getting them? Are we smarter than what we think? Are we good snow goose hunters now? Or are we just killing dumber adults that aren't very old and uh, not really know what decoys are yet? I might sound crazy talking about that. That's, that's, yeah, that's really the kind of stuff we talk about when we're having a couple whiskeys every night, when we're, you know, <laughs> scratching our heads. What can we do to beat these things? You know, what, what is our, you know, what really is our enemy? What, how old is he? How smart is it? And, uh, they constantly show you new things. It's, you gotta be able to think outside the box and throw new things at them. And it's a tough thing to do when you got clients, because you either look like a zero or a hero. It's either going to work good, 
But if it doesn't work, you look like an idiot and you're sitting out there for four hours trying to answer questions why guys are saying, well, why did you do this this way this year? We've never done this before. And all you can say is, well, because these birds are beating us right now, we have to try new things. And it's sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. As I like that line, zero to hero, you're, you're either going to get them or they're going to get you. Yeah, no, you got to think like that, though, to be successful. Yep. Yep. You never, never stop learning. I'll just keep beating that to myself every year. I mean, as long as you can pick up something new every year, it makes you that much better for the, for the next battle, the next season down the road. So when you're hunting them down in Arkansas, are most of your feeds in rice then? Uh, it all depends. I mean, when it's wet and wet and warm, yep, they're going to rice. If it's cold, they're going to beans, but it's, are they going to beans? Are they eating beans that are on the ground? Are they just eating green grass anywhere? You know, are they eating the corn when they're in the cornfield? Are they just eating greens and maintaining? Um, you know, the birds we clean, there's very little grain in them. When they're in a rice field, they'll have rice in them, but everything you, you hear that term shit like a goose that had to be coined in Arkansas because that is a real thing. You can literally, you walk out into a green field down there and you are literally slipping and sliding everywhere because they're just flushing that green right through their system. And uh, that's one of the other things that's changed in Arkansas too. They don't have the winter wheat that they used to have. That used to be the game changer. When you had a wheat field come February, that was the go-to place. You knew there was going to be birds on it. There's just no more wheat in Arkansas. That's been a big, big game changer. So a lot of them are going to wherever they can get any kind of green possible. And if it's late in the year, uh, if it's been a real cold year, there might not be any green. Real dry year, there's not going to be much green. So things are constantly changing. Uh, temperature and moisture, that's the biggest thing that changes what the feeds are. If it's wet, they're going to rice. I mean, it's we've done it a hundred times before. All right, they fed in the beans tonight. It's nice and dry. You get a thunderstorm overnight. What do you do? Do you set up in the rice field right next to it, or do you pick your X and go to the beans? And we finally been able to adapt to that. The next, you know, it's it's such a roll of the dice, right? Well, why would we leave the X? Why don't why don't we just hunt the X where they were? Well, you, they wake up and they want rice because it's it's a new food source. When it rains, it creates a food source for them and they forget about the beans. So it's always a gamble. A thunderstorm will, that's the worst thing you can have in Arkansas. And it usually happens about an hour and a half before shooting light. So it works out pretty oh convenient. Oh yeah. It's when we, <laughs> if we go to bed and there's a radar coming out of Houston or Dallas, you can bet that in about an hour before shooting time, when we're setting decoys at, we'll have lightning and thunder on top of us and it'll just change the complete pattern for the day and you have to act like you're still excited with your clients oh it's 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 we're doing rock paper scissors <laughs> to see who has to burn alive in the field that morning because nobody wants to stay now <laughs> <laughs> but yeah one specific example i had it's... this year um running the full bodies it was the day before the blizzard hit um and we had run full body spreads, you know, six, seven full hundred or six to seven hundred full bodies, uh, two to three days prior to the blizzard with the same results. They just fly by you, completely ignore you coming to the X like it's their job 
and then go around you. They get about 150, 200 yards out. There's not even a flare. They don't even get pumping, pumping their wings, getting excited. They just go around you and go a mile up the road and start landing out there and then just keep bouncing the feet away from them. And I'm thinking, well, what, what can we do to these things today? You know, we had a good feed that had 15,000 birds on it and we only had a hundred, 120 of your full bodies in Arkansas the last couple of years. If we're using them, we're using a few just because it's such, it's such a harsh environment to run full bodies. And we, your decoys are way too pretty to destroy and throw in an Arkansas rice field. We just can't do it to them. <laughs> we're, uh, you know, I've seen what the white brothers do with theirs. And, you know, I messaged them a few times saying, God, how are those things holding up going in the seed bags? They're like three years. No problem. Might be a couple scratches on them here and there, but, and here we've, for the last two years, we've been double bagging our individual bagging ours, putting them in a seed bag, you know, bag and unbag, bag and unbag just takes so much time. And we literally pick our battles because we want to keep those decoys so bright and so clean and only use them when it's frozen or really dry. So this year we took them out. The first time I used them in the conservation season um, was the day before the blizzard. All the weather was the same. It got cold. It was, it got colder. It went down from 28 degrees down to about 18. So it, it got pretty chilly that morning. We had a hard wind and I went with my gut and said, well, we're going to put decoys behind us. Just the most backwards setup you could do. You know, we had a nice little ditch line and put the decoys behind us about 40 or 50 yards because these things are flaring or going around us hundred, 150 yards out. They're not coming to the decoys. They just know what decoys are. And what do you know, um, it, it made me look really dumb for the first time in the season. The birds just wanted to decoy to them. They flew over high on us, about 50 yards high. And once they got behind our blinds, they just dropped right into them. We had three big spins do that. We ended up killing 40 birds that morning, which was the high for the season at the time. That's, that's how bad a season it was in Arkansas. 40 birds for the first week of the season was the high shoot that we had. And, uh, but the one day I decided to put decoys behind them. I mean, it's just a great testament to what a small spread of your decoys did to birds that we had found unkillable three days prior to that with giant full body spreads, put out a small spread and they were literally landing in them and obviously couldn't do anything about it. It was one of those things, turn the guys loose out the back door and shoot them as they're going away type of thing. You know, hindsight 2020, absolutely. If we would have had them 15 yards in front of us, it would have been one of the dirtiest scenes we've seen in a long time. But it just didn't work out that way. But uh, just a great testament for what those decoys did on that particular day. You know, maybe it's a combination of the decoys and the temperature dropping that extra 10 degrees down to 18 degrees where, all right, they really, really got hungry today. Um but they did it. They did it good that day with a small spread of full bodies, as compared to 700 the three days before, or half wind socks, half full bodies, trying to get that, you know, look big. You know, everybody thinks you want to look big. There is something to that. You want to look big. You want to have that pulling power. But at the end of the day, you can you can get to that what we call the critical mass, and you get so big, it doesn't matter what you have because at the end of the day, they just know you're still a decoy. Um, and then at the end of the day, that all comes down to knowing what birds you're hunting. Are these things even killable or 
is it happy hunting conditions where it's warmer and they're going to act totally different? So just so many different scenarios when it comes to these spring snows, as far as weather and decoys and, and uh, what they're doing, it just makes a guy go crazy thinking about what he can do and what he can't do. And some days like we had this year, you just end up throwing your hands up. Uh, it doesn't matter. Everything we know doesn't matter right now. So let's just go hunt and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious when you're running small spreads of full bodies, you guys run an e-collar still? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it's one of those things. Uh, it's definitely one of those tools that gets abused during the season. Lots of guys just turn it up. You think you got to be loud. You got to be loud. Sometimes you, you hit that point. Well, yeah, they have to hear it. Maybe they don't. Are they getting smart to e-callers? Absolutely. They are. Um, you know, we've had, we've been able to call snow geese in with speckle belly calls, just, you know, ridiculous sounds that speckle bellies don't even make just screaming, clucking yodels, the worst stuff that you've ever heard, but the snows respond to them because it's a different sound. And it's, it's pretty neat that way. We don't do anything with the mouth calls. I haven't, I'm, I'm one of the guys that's absolutely against a mouth call just for the birds that we're hunting here. It's never worked. It it's, I think you're better off just letting them do their own thing. Once they start making their noise, then you know, you've got them. Um, but until that happens, you need noise to get them started. So definitely the e-callers they're, they're good and they're bad. It's, it's a hit and miss thing on those. I mean, with, so many different brands and so many different sounds out there now. And, and, uh, they've definitely heard everything that can be thrown at them there. Um, there's some good, really good quality sounds out there now. Um, but again, it's all depending on how you use it. You know, you can give some guys the best equipment and if they don't use it properly, but what is using it properly when it comes to snow geese, we still don't know that every day, every day they're changing the rules, you know, but, uh, <laughs> It's just a, yeah, with the e-callers, it's, it's a tough thing. You can be either really loud. Some days you can, it doesn't matter what you do and they're going to love it, but absolutely there's other days where you can just blow them out of the water, but you still have to have some sound to get their attention. And they just hit that certain point where like, yeah, that's, we're smart. That's a big decoy spread with a jukebox down there and you're just making really bad noise. Um, so they just ignore you, you know, they, they all get to that point where they, um, there's definitely a point in the spring where you cannot do anything about it. They just keep on, um, flying right by you. It's, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Can't even explain it really. You have to see it. It's one oh. of those things, just like the biggest tornadoes, the, the most impressive thing you'll ever see, but when you could be in the, some of the best feeds possible and they just fly by you like you're not even there. Um, it's just the biggest kick in the hind end a guy could ever experience doing what you know how to do. And then they just, yeah, yeah, we know you're fake. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're not killing anything today. <laughs> it's You almost have to laugh at it. You have to laugh at something like that to keep your sanity because it's absolutely real. There's literally days where it doesn't matter what you throw at them. You're not going to win. Yeah, you know, it, it sounds like you're you're kind of obsessed obsessed with it and and obsessed with the idea of just trying to figure it out, which is pretty pretty cool. Uh, it's pretty amazing, actually. 
put it this way, I'm, I'm obsessed with them enough that um, I would rather work with great outfitters like my buddy Nick and Matt at Eagle Head Outdoors because they're the ones that take probably 90% of the stress on it. And I'm, I consider myself more of a player coach consultant uh, because I, I love doing it. But at the end of the day, I, for years, for 20 years, I've told myself, I'm not like, I am not a spring snow goose outfitter. I've worked with some of the best guys. I know a lot of the best goose hunters out there in the central flyway. And those guys are, the real meat and potatoes of the snow goose hunting industry. Those, the guys that keep doing it and have, have been doing it for 20 years or longer, um, just no quit on those guys. They've literally seen every situation and the fact that the stress hasn't killed them and they keep doing it. It's, you can't even describe that passion. That is a real honest to God passion that you cannot train somewhere. It's almost like that drive in a, in a lab, you know, Sometimes you can build the drive, but when it's there and it just keeps getting stronger and stronger year after year and there's just no quit, that's what you're looking for in a snow goose outfitter if you're looking to book a hunt. The guys that have been doing it a long time and they just absolutely have a pure passion about it. They love the geese and they hate them at the same time, but they have nothing but the (laughs) utmost respect for the animal because it is one of the most challenging hunts to do as just a hunter or even as a client booking a hunt, one of the toughest hunts to book, I would say anywhere, because it's, there's just so many factors that contribute to guaranteeing success that, that are completely out of your control. So, okay. So you hit the, the front end of the conservation season in Arkansas. Where do you go from there? Uh, I take a break because I'm not, I personally am not as mad at these birds as I used to be when I was in my twenties <laughs> and thirties. Um, I used to follow them all the way up into South Dakota with the Eagle head crew and help them out there. And then, um, I was going up to Saskatchewan for, for a few years as well and f- going right till the middle of May. And, uh, my buddies at Eagle head, they, uh, they're co-owners and swift river outfitters up there as well too. So they run spring snows all the way up from, mid-April to mid-May in Saskatchewan as well. So it was literally, you know, starting from September 1st and going all the way to May 15th, there was maybe three weeks out of the entire season there that we would not be hunting. And I would say 10 days of that was at Christmas and New Year's when we would take a break. And we did that for did that for 10 years. It, it just got to be such a long haul. So I myself now, I do my, my two-week camp in, or two-month camp in Alberta. Uh, do a little bit of deer hunting in November and then hop down to Arkansas for December, January, February, take a break in March, bounce back up to Alberta for uh, April and May snows in Alberta. And then that transitions into my spring bear hunting season. But again, not all that's for naught with the border closed. But uh, once, uh, you know, I, I lived in North and South Dakota for 18 years and things have changed there so much when it comes to the migration. Um, the Dakotas have almost become just a flyover state because the lack of snow early warm up in the spring in Canada and the Dakotas seems to time in together basically. And the birds will roll up there. You'll always get the spring blizzard. It seems right around St. Patrick's day every year, South Dakota gets hit with a foot of wet, sloppy snow 
it'll stall out the migration or com completely cause a split in the migration where birds will bump into North Dakota, maybe Southern Canada, and then other birds will bump back down into Nebraska and Iowa and Missouri again. And you get all those splits in the migrations and ups and downs, and it gets to the point that the birds don't even know where they're, they're coming or going. But that drive they have to get to the breeding area is so hard. They just want to get back to Canada and just start fattening up on grain and get up to the nesting areas as fast as they can. It's uh, pretty impressive that front edge, what they do. Um, you know, a lot of people think, well, it's not warm enough. They're, they're not going to have water. They don't need water. As long as they can get food, they're standing on ice, they're melting ice, they're eating ice chips. I don't know what those things do on the frozen lakes, but uh, they don't need water. They just have such an incredible drive to get north. And if there's no snow or very little snow, they're going. It's, uh, and that just makes it that much tougher because they have one thing on their mind. You're trying to stop something that doesn't want to stop until they decide they want to stop. So it's just a, literally a small window of, uh, getting those right quality birds to decoy when you're up that far north up in the Dakotas. And so, um, your, your, about your Alberta hunts are April and in, into mid-May. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. April into May. And, uh, you know, it all depends on what the, the, the weather is doing up there as well too, and where they're going to be going and the snow lines and, and, but once they, once they get up there and they move up towards the tree line, they all seem to stage, stage the same areas at the same time. Um, and just waiting. It's, it's a pretty magical thing. When I was working in Saskatchewan for a few years, it seemed every year the birds were leaving on the same three days every year. And when they did that, it, they're just so fat, they can't even migrate at normal heights that you would think that would be considered migratable. They're literally flying treetop high and just barely scraping the trees and they're gone. Once they leave, they're gone. They ain't coming back. It's, it's pretty impressive when they start bailing out like that. I wonder how much of that has to do with the lack of food they have now up on the tundra. You know, it seems like everybody I talk to that hunts the spring snows there, um, you know, right before they make the jump over the boreal forest there says the same thing that the birds are so ridiculously fat. I mean, snows that weigh five or six pounds on the wintering grounds are seven, even eight pounds and just got a three quarter inch thick layer of fat on them. Oh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, if, if nobody's seen that, they have to see it just, just from looking how skinny they can be in Arkansas when they're, you know, when they're wintering, those, those big adult birds might be a five pound bird. They get up North, they're going to put on three more pounds. It's incredible how heavy they are. And when they hit the ground, they literally burst, they explode. There's so much fat inside them and they're so heavy. They're there's no other way to describe it. It's as gross as it sounds, but they, when they hit the ground, <laughs> they explode and their guts shoot out their rear end. It's, it sounds so crazy, but it's true. It's the first time I seen that and asked the guys I was with, what happened? Why did this thing blow up like this? Who shot this? No, it's, and then half your birds will do that. You might kill a hundred birds and you can have 40 or 50 of them with their guts blown out their rear end because they're so heavy and fat. And it's something different about that fat they have too. It's, it's, pure liquid it's not like a bird that's got thick layer of corn fat attached to its skin it's it's honestly uh like it's got to be like nature's 
uh, hand lotion or hand salve or something, because when you clean a hundred of those birds, all the cracks go away on your hands and fingers, all the, all the cuts, everything's, your hands are clean as can be. They're smooth. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an unreal, unreal thing to see, but yeah, it's when they leave that they're so fat and so heavy. And I'd love to be able to sit down with a biologist that's really put in his dues up there to, to learn about what they do. Cause it's, are they building nests when there's snow on the ground? Are they sitting there for 20 days, 28 days incubating eggs without eating? Or are they walking away from their nest? Once they start sitting, are they sitting for 28 days without eating because they're that fat and they need to have that fat until the, the snow melts and they can start feeding again. I mean, it's, it's one thing I've never, never had anybody point out the specifics to me. So it's all a guy can do is speculate. Cause it's a pretty, pretty impressive story for what they do. You know, when they leave the farmland mid May and then they're up in the Arctic within two, three days, they're on ice, there's ice, there's snow, there's no food. Uh, I've seen pictures of, uh, Inuit hunters up North and they're literally building igloos and they put out a few dozen decoys and they're shooting them in two feet of snow. And there's snowmobiles. That's the only way you can travel around. But there's geese up there. What are those things doing up there? There's no food. But they're up there with two feet of snow on the ground because they know it's time to lay eggs. It's just an incredible drive. It's They either have incredible drive or they're just flat out psycho. We say that all the time, too. I, I think it's probably half and half. I mean, it's, they're just a crazy animal. They obviously... We, we say it all the time. They don't even know what they're doing half the time, but there is a method to their madness. Otherwise there wouldn't be millions of them if it wasn't working for them. Right. Yeah. You know, that's what we were going to say about you, Trevor, is you either have an incredible driver or you're just psycho. Yep. Yep. Or else I have nothing else better to do. I mean, I worked in the oil field for a couple of years. It's either I could go be a snow goose guide or go back to the oil field and yeah, the oil field 30 below Canada all winter. I'd rather follow the geese down to where it's 30 above rainy and muddy. That's a lot better than a Northern Canada winter, but yeah, either one of those sure. professions, somebody may look at them and say, yeah, you're kind of psycho, aren't you? <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, listen, we've taken up a lot of your time and we appreciate it so, so, so much. And that was super insightful. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, looking forward to putting the new decoys to the test in Alberta this year. Um, pretty excited to get those up there and get out of the mud and finally start being to being able to hunt some nice dry wheat stubble fields again. Uh, you guys will be seeing lots of updates from me. I'll have lots of good videos and pics with the new decoys up there. Right on. And so how can, um, people get a hold of you if they want to book a hunt with you? Uh, website, pretty simple. It's top of the flyway.com. My contact numbers on there. Same thing on Facebook. Just look up top of the flyway outfitters. We'll be doing, uh, daily updates there. It's pretty inactive now, but we'll be posting videos and pictures every day once we get going again. And, uh, so yeah, top of the flyway outfitters on Facebook and on Instagram and top of the flyway.com is the website. Thank you so awesome. much. Yeah, we sure appreciate your your time, Trevor. Yep, thanks, guys. You guys got an awesome product. Keep it up. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) 
Well, thanks for listening to this episode of DSD Hunting Podcast. Um, we really appreciate you helping us grow this podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or even just share on social media. Uh, that goes a long ways. We'd love the chance to keep bringing fresh content. So if you don't already, follow us, Dave Smith Decoys, on Instagram and Facebook for updates on new episodes. We'll have opportunities for customers to get involved too with the conversation and ask questions. So keep an eye out every Friday for new episodes. And thank you so much for all your support and for listening to us.